Well, I can tell you the exact date and location that I met my wife. It's kind of a, a cool moment. The, the exact date, the exact time, the exact location that I met Krista. It was August 21st, 2006. Uh, I was working a booth for a club uh, on our college campus. And uh, she approached, and we talked for a few minutes. And then when she w- went away, when, she, when we finished talking, I remember just in my head over and over and over again, just being like, okay, Krista, Krista. Krista. Because there's 40, 50,000 people at Cal State Fullerton. That's where we met. And uh, I was just like, if I, if I see this girl again, I want to be able to talk to her. I, I need to know her name. It's, it's all I had. All I had was her name, and I wanted to know her more. And then I got her number. I mean, technically, she filled out a contact card. <laughs> but digits are digits, you know? <laughs> And legitimately, for the sake of the club, I did have to call her, but it still, I, I uh, had this code that, if used properly, could lead to deeper relationship. And so I, I, with great fear, I actually dialed numbers, which is something we don't do anymore. It freaks me out. Uh, but, but I dialed numbers, and I, I rang, and I, just, I listened for her voice, and, and 10 years, and three kids, four kids later, the rest is history. And I share that with you so that you might consider just very simply this, that every relationship, every relationship begins with introduction. Like, just very literally, there was a moment where I didn't know her, and then I did. I didn't know her, and then I did. Before there can ever be intimacy, there must first be introduction. It all begins with who are you? What is your name? And you hear people talking like all the time. Maybe you've said it. I I know I've certainly said it. You hear people talking all the time about having a relationship with God, which is great. I mean, you could probably go. We could could leave here. You could almost maybe even go to everyone on the street. And and most people will talk about in some way having a relationship with God with God or, or, or a higher power of, of some sort. And whenever I hear that, my question is always, like, how? What do you mean when you say you have a relationship with God? With, with God, and for right now, I'm just talking about any sort of deity, higher power, essence thing up there, right? It's different. How, how do you, like, how could you be so bold as to say, I have a relationship with this God? You can't introduce yourself. Hey, my name is DJ. How's it going? Right? What does that even mean? What does that look like? And if you have to discover this God or this power, what makes you think he or she or it wants to be known? What kind of relationship is that? See, without God's initiation, there actually is no relationship. Without God's initiation, there is no relationship. You can't know him. Now, you're free, I guess. Maybe you've done this and you know people who do this. You're free to imagine God to be any way that you want. To kind of uh, imagine, uh, to to kind of rebel against this dependency. But again, then, let's, let's just be honest. That's a God in your image. That's a figment of your imagination. There's no genuine relationship where you can be um, challenged. No, no genuine relationship where you can be loved, where you can be changed. 
you are dependent upon God to know who God is. It's kind of a scary idea, but God has to desire relationship with you. God has to desire relationship with you. And that is the good news, the beauty of the Bible. And specifically, the book of Exodus, where you guys have been, is that we get to declare to you that God wants to be known. Chapter 3 of Exodus opens up and God gives his name. He introduces himself. He says, I am Yahweh. I am. You can call me by this. And then through acts of judgment on the other powers and the other gods, he shows his strength. And then these two verses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, he reveals his glory, his character. He says, this is who I am. And I want you to know who I am truly. And that's why this passage right here and this series you guys are doing is of utmost importance because it forces you to consider just the simple question. Does your relationship with God rest on who God has revealed himself to be? Or is it based on your preferences, your ideas, your imagination? How you would like him. So who is this God? Well, this is the series, right? God has a name. Yahweh. I am. And when Moses asks, show me your glory, here's what Yahweh does. He says, let me proclaim my name to you. And he proclaims my name. Here's what Yahweh means. Exodus 34, 6. He says, oh, there you go. The Lord passed before me and proclaimed his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. So it's not just that he does merciful things from time to time. It's actually at the very heart of God that he is merciful and gracious. It says, you want to know who I am? And the first words that come out of his mouth about himself is that he is a God of mercy and grace. When God acts mercifully towards you, it's not a game, it's not a trick, it's not a ploy where he's later going to like psych and like, like get you down the line. And if you feel like, God, where is your mercy in this? You can know, he said, I am merciful. When you seek mercy, you can know you will find it. He is slow to anger. This is what Steve taught last week. Steve, you did a great job. I was in the podcast. It was awesome. My, my favorite way, I'll keep this short because he just, he just taught it. My favorite way of describing this is to simply say, listen, you can beat God in a race. You can beat God in a race. Now, that sounds crazy because he's God almighty, powerful, or whatever. But just, just consider this. That in a race, your repentance will beat his anger every single time. So when you come to God and you, you're broken over your sin, over your life, and you say, God, I, I want to come to you, you will never you will never repent and find that his anger has beat you to that moment. His anger is slow. He's patient. So if you have breath in your lungs, you can repent. And if you are here today, and you're here today, it, what it means is, is simply that, that God is not finished with you yet. He's not. You can return to him. That's all beautiful, but it's this next line that becomes the most repeated. And that's what we're going to slow down and look at today. It says this, and I want to put it in the phrase of a question, is simply, do you know God as one who is abounding 
in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you know God as one who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? Steadfast love and faithfulness, um, those are uh, two words. Um, underneath those words are, are, this is English, underneath those two words or those two ideas is the Hebrew. Steadfast love is chesed. I'm not going to do the ch every time because I'm terrible at it. But we do it with an H. So chesed. is uh, uh, chesed and his amet. Now, I hate it usually. This is a personal preference of mine. I don't like it when preachers use uh, Greek or Hebrew words. Most of the time, if a, this is my opinion, but if, if a guy's up here, someone's up here, and they're, they're saying uh, Hebrew or Greek words, they're just being fancy. You don't need to know it. Except this time. This is like one of those rare exceptions where it's really helpful to know this word, especially this word, chesed. Because it's, it's one of the most lo- difficult words to translate, not because it's vague, chesed, but actually because it's so loaded with meaning. And if you're at all worried, like, well, is steadfast love, is that okay? You know, yeah, steadfast love is probably the shortest, best way to translate it in two words rather than giving a whole paragraph because it carries that much weight with it. And the Bible would be like 120 pages longer if every time it said said it gave a full paragraph. But here's what said is about. It carries the ideas fused together of both love and commitment. So not just love as sort of like, I feel this, or, I des- or man, this makes me feel good, or, or I love tacos, right? It's, it's, it's the fusion of, of love and commitment, a, a committed love. A love that is gracious and unconditioned, but also powerful, a covenant love. A covenant love. And we don't use that word covenant very often, but chesed carries this idea of covenant. Uh, a covenant is a type of relational agreement. So if we're going to be in relationship, we're going to come to an agreement, and I'm going to keep my side of the agreement. And, he's saying, I have, I, and so when we say chesed and covenant love, he's saying, I have committed to love you, and I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. So covenant love, committed love, steadfast love, chesed, is a love that is not based on the other, but is based on the self. It's not based on what you bring to the table. It's based on my fidelity, my faithfulness. It's a choice, not a feeling. And this is why Yahweh's chesed, his steadfast love, when you read it in the scriptures, it's almost always linked with his emet, his faithfulness. It's not just his ability to say, hey, I'm going to love you. It's like, okay, but will you? So it's his, his, his resolve said, hey, I'm committed to love you, and I'm truthful, I'm faithful to actually follow through. I don't just make promises, I keep them. And so chesed and emet, steadfast love and faithfulness, we, we give it th- Three words, steadfast love and faithfulness, but it's really like this Venn diagram where if you were to take like grace and love and even a little bit of power and, and choice and fidelity and not lying, and if you were to all, wherever those things meet, right, we don't have one English word that gets at that, but that's, where, however you want to marry those things together, that's chesed and amet, that's steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And this relational, how I want us to really unpack this and see, okay, what does it mean? So God's that, that's great. But, but, but like, how does that actually shape the story? How does that actually shape your life and my life? I think it's best if you and I, we walk through and understand this language of covenant. And this covenant isn't, it's not just a fancy theological word. It's the logic, this goes back to my introduction. It's the logic of having a relationship with God. You don't get to set the terms with God. When people say you have a relationship with God, that's great. But what do you even mean? What do you even mean? You can't introduce yourself to him. And you can't say, hey, you know what, God, let's go out for drinks on Friday night. Let's, like, like if you're going to have a relationship with God, it has to be on his initiation. And here's the second bit. He has to set the terms. And that's what it means to have a covenant. It's the logic of having a relationship with God. If there's a relationship, he points the way. If I wanted to hear Krista's voice, I needed her number. There wasn't a way around that. Covenant sets the term. And without covenant, and you see ancient religion, uh, ancient people without covenant, you had people were always walking on eggshells constantly. Are the gods angry? I don't know. Let's sacrifice a goat, right? Well, are the gods angry? I don't know. Are they happy? What, what does it mean? And they're always guessing and wondering, and you are... Um, at the mercy of the powers of the world. There is no relationship apart from covenants, a relational agreement. And that's the reality of the power dynamics of having a relationship with God. This is maybe a little bit offensive, something we don't always like to consider, but that's the reality of the power dynamics of having a relationship with Yahweh. And it's a little scary because he sets the terms. And he says, I'm covenanting, I'm promising to love, which is great. But is he a met? Is he faithful? Is he trustworthy? And this story of the Bible is one of God and his covenants. One of God and his promises. One of God and his relationship. And over and over again, he keeps it. So to help us really unpack Exodus 34, I think, it's, I think we just tell the story of the scriptures through the lens of covenant. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, first book of the Bible. It's also on this screen. Now before Genesis 12 is Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world and everything in it, and he makes a, a form of covenant with Adam, the, the first man. He says, um, uh, everything here is, is for your good. He gives him a commission, be fruitful, multiply. And he says, okay, but, but don't eat of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. Here's what it means to have a relationship with me. There needs to be some sort of trust. There's this, you can have this, I am here for you here, but, but this is the framework, don't eat lest you die. And Adam eats, and he's exiled. He cuts himself off, he rejects God, and he cuts himself off, and exile is the story. Later on, so the sin is at work in the world. Uh, there's the story of Noah and the flood where God... Uh, uh, brings destruction on the earth, and when it's over, God makes a covenant, a relational agreement with Noah. He puts a rainbow in the sky and says, hey, this is my sign for you. This is my promise. I'm pledging relationally to you. I'm not going to do this again. And, and Noah doesn't have to do anything in return. This is just God making a covenant with Noah and humanity saying, I won't do this. Now, Genesis 12 in the wake of sin, and, and, and there's all this violence and chaos going on in God's good creation. It's like, okay, well, what's going to happen next? Like, so you're not going to destroy it, God, but what, are we just going like, to live in this world that's broken? In Genesis 12, 
verses 1 through 3. Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here God makes these promises. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He takes this one guy, Abram, he says, hey, from you I'm going to create a whole nation and from that nation, I'm going to bring blessing to the entire world. This is how redemption is going to come out. This is my covenant with you and with humanity is that from this line, from this family, I will be a God of blessing. And if you know anything about the story, uh, Abram is an old guy. His wife is old as well. They don't have any kids. And, and so to say to uh, a retired couple uh, on their way out, right, to say, hey, uh, you, you're going to have a whole family that's, that's ridiculous. And so in Genesis 15, if you want to flip your page with me, if you got your Bible, flip it or scroll really fast. In Genesis 15, that exact question comes up. God, you've made this promise, but are you faithful? Are you able? Are you truthful are you to, to, to keep that promise? What will that actually look like? I'm old. And God says, hey, look at the, the heavens. Number the stars. That's how big your family is going to be. In verse 7, Here's this tension, 15 verse 7. Abram said to the, uh, uh, God said to Abram, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I'm going to give you this place. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How, how, like, how do I know that you're going to be faithful to what you've said? And this really, really odd thing happens if you want to look this. It's like one of the weirder stories in the Bible. Uh, verse 9, God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Just bring a little farm here, right? And he brought them all these things. Okay, cool. And then he cut them in half. Whoa. And they laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram Drove them away. Now, it's a weird scene, just killing a bunch of animals. What's going on? This is in, in the, the area of ancient Mesopotamia. This is a covenant ritual, uh, a relational agreement ritual, a contract. Uh, uh, I'm going to do this, you're going to do this type ritual. And, and kings and families would do this sort of activity all the time where they say, hey, we're going to make an agreement, yeah, yeah? Cool, here's what we're going to do. Okay, and then they would kill animals and they would lay them against each other and then they would walk through them together. A sign that says like, hey, I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. You're going to keep your end of the bargain. We're walking through this. We're, there's death on either side of us and it's a reminder that we're coming into this agreement contractually and saying I'm going to keep my promise because death is on the line, right? I, I will bear a curse should I break this covenant. So they... So they do this whole thing where they kill the animals. And then verse 12, it gets weirder. The sun was going down and a deep sleep fell on Abram. Mid-ritual. It's very rude. You don't fall asleep mid-ritual, right? But he falls asleep. And the Lord said to Abram, look at this. Know for certain. Know for certain. Without a doubt. 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. It's not exactly good news, but he's saying, hey, know for certain. He begins to tell the future. But I will bring judgment on the nation they shall serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. He's prophesying, he's telling of what happens in the book of Exodus. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's saying, no, for certain. He gives us prophecy, and he promises them the land. And then look at this, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Those are, are symbols for the very presence of God. Look, they passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord, Yahweh, made a covenant an agreement, a relationship with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The presence of God alone passes through the ritual, invoking a curse upon himself. They don't walk, both walk through it together. God alone passes through this. God invokes a curse upon himself saying, if I should break what I have promised to you, I am not who I've said I, will, I am. I am a curse. And 400 years later, God fulfills exactly everything that he had promised. They are a nation and they're on their way to the promised land. And Yahweh again makes a covenant with this nation. This is called the Mosaic Covenant. And he says to them, you will be my kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. I am going to bless the world. What I said to your great, 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 great grandfather Abram that I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to bring redemption. I'm going to do it through you. You are to be holy to me. I will be your God. And then he lays out, here's what it means for you to be my people. Here's what it means for us to have a relationship. Walk in my way and I will bless you. When you're obedient, I will bless you. But if you disobey, if you are unholy, then you are, are distancing yourself from me and exile and death is the result. You're stepping away from life. And in Exodus 24, this is on the screen, you don't need to turn there unless you're like really fast. Exodus 24, here's what happens. Verse seven. Moses took the book of the covenant, the book of, of, of what God spoke and they read it over all the hearing of the people all the rules of what it looks like to be holy, what it looks like to, to be God's people. And here's what they say. They said, listen, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. That's, Genesis, that's Exodus 24. Did I not give that to you? Ah, well, listen to me say it. All right, close your eyes. Listen, this is a dramatic reading, right? Uh, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of people. He, he reads them this law. And he said to them, and they respond, they say, everything that God has spoken, everything Yahweh has spoken, we will do it. We will be obedient. And then it says, Moses took blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Again, this idea of death and curse. That if we walk in this covenant, if we walk in relationship with God, there is life, there is blessing, there's redemption. If we have relationship, if we walk in the terms that he has set, we will obey, we will experience everything he has promised, but recognizing if we disobey, we are cutting ourselves off and forfeiting the promise that he has given us. And all that is background, I know that's a lot, but listen, 
This is the drama of these two verses that we've been reading, you guys have been studying in Exodus 34. This is the drama because they said, all that you've spoken, we will do. All that you've spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And then like a couple days later, they completely break it. It's like getting married and then cheating on your wedding night. That's the picture of what happens. They worship an idol, a golden calf. That's Exodus 32. And the tension of Exodus 34 is like the covenant, this promise that God has made is in jeopardy. It's in jeopardy. Because idolatry, they've, they've cut themselves off from what God has promised. And that's what makes this passage of Exodus 34 so breathtaking. Because Yahweh affirms, he says, I am the God of covenant love. I make promises and I keep them. And so then the rest, the tension of the Bible, the tension of the Bible, the rest of the OT goes on, and this gets tested like to the max because there's sin and idolatry and darkness and failure and failure and exile. How can Yahweh be a God of covenant love with a people hell-bent on breaking it? How can God keep his covenant with a people hell-bent on breaking it? And the only hope that emerges in the Old Testament is that someday there could be a new covenant, a new agreement, a new way of relating with Yahweh that is intimate and near. Where there could be somehow forgiveness of sins, where there could somehow be faithfulness, where God's presence could be in your midst. It's impossible. And you need to understand all of that. Because that, that illuminates and helps you see when Jesus enters into the picture. As we even celebrate Christmas right now and, and, and the coming of Christ, this is the purpose of Jesus is to fulfill this covenant, to fulfill this relationship. In fact, the night before Jesus was crucified, this is Luke twenty two twenty. 20. This is the, oh, I'm sorry, it's, 20, did I say 2.20? Man, I'm just like messing everyone up. It's 22.20, not 2.20. That's a great Christmas verse, though. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, Luke 22, we're just doing dramatic readings here. I, I said it would be easy for you back there, and I just messed you up all over. Um, Luke 22.20. Oh, that's on you. You just check. Okay. So everyone blames that. We're all in agreement. You heard it. Here's Luke 22, 20. Here's where Jesus is having this meal the night before he's crucified. He says, likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. This is the new way of relating with God in my blood. And Jesus connects this idea of covenant with his cross. The covenant and the cross are together. In covenant, again, how do you have a relationship with God? God sets the terms. God makes a way. He says, you want a relationship with God, you need to obey him. You, you need to, if you want a relationship with God, you need to keep his terms. It's just like, because otherwise you can't have a relationship with him. You're just, you're making it up. It's not real. So if you want a relationship with God, you got you to walk in what he's given. And if you keep it, you'll be blessed in intimacy. But, but it's, just, it's, it's logic, right? If you disobey, if God says, here's what it looks like to have a relationship with me, and you're like, no, nah, I'm good, then, then you don't have a relationship with him. You might have something in your head, but it's not real. And, and the result is exile and death. And that's why the scriptures say the wages of sin is death, the wrath of God. And it's, listen, it's not an arbitrary add-on to sin, like, I'm just really mad that you sin. He's like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get you. No, it's, it's actually logic. It's the natural result. 
When you break covenant, you're divorcing yourself from the creator, the sustainer, the one whose image you've been made in, the relationship you've called to be in that that gives life, and that's the blessing. that When you say, no, I don't want that, I want something else, death is the result. That's what sin is, and God's wrath is that he gives you over to that reality. And like Adam, like Israel... Like all of humanity, as we come to this text, you and me, we've been unable to keep the covenant. No one in here has walked perfectly in what God has given. We've failed to give God the glory due to his creation. We are the rebels and the vandals. Sin is not random rule breaking. Like God said, hey, don't touch that just because I don't want you to. And you're like, well, it's no big deal. And he's like, oh, I'm really mad. You're dead now. I think that's sometimes how we approach, like if God is some fickle, weird guy. No, it's when you sin, it's you're setting up a rival kingdom. You're setting up alternate gods. You're, you're trying to take over creation. You didn't know you were doing that maybe, but that's what's happening. That's you and me. That's humanity. And yet, we are made in God's image, and so God loves you. And so there's this tension where, where God, where humanity, you and I, we are both the object of God's Wrath, as those who are setting up alternate kingdoms, breaking covenants, and we are the object of his affection. God loves you. And this is why Jesus came. This is why God sent Jesus to the cross, to both object of wrath and object of affection. Jesus is sent to the cross to remove his wrath. And the fancy word for this, the theological word, is, is the word propitiation, and what it means is that you're reconciled, you're brought back in, your sin is atoned for, you're forgiven. There's a new covenant, a new relating, there's a new agreement with God. And this is not the pagan idea of propitiation where you have some ticked off deity in the sky who's distant and mad and he's like, give me a sacrifice. That's not good enough, I need human blood. Right? That's, that's not the picture at all of what the scriptures present. Biblical propitiation, or what is called substitutionary atonement, it's not motivated by anger. It's motivated by chesed. It's motivated by love. See, what makes the Christian gospel, Christian propitiation different than pagan things where you're just offering sacrifices to satisfy an angry God is that you don't actually satisfy the wrath of God. God provides the sacrifice himself. He propitiates himself. He initiates. He accomplishes. The cross is Genesis 15, where he invokes the curse upon himself. It's motivated by his own steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus didn't get beat up. He willingly offered his life. And it's not that God wrath-punched Jesus until he's like, all right, that ought to do it. I'm not mad anymore. No, it's this idea of covenant. Jesus, through his perfect life, his sinless life, his obedience, Jesus is a faithful representative. He's the head of a new way of being human. He fulfills both sides of the covenant. He is God's son. He's fully God, sent from God. And he's fully human. He represents, he's our king. And the scriptures say he's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So break it all down, this idea of covenant. What does it mean to have a relationship with God? He sets the terms. We've disobeyed. No relationship, death, exile, all those things. Listen, you aren't obedient. I'm not obedient. Death is the natural product. But Jesus is perfect humanity. 
So you break covenant, but the cost of breaking covenant has been paid by Jesus, the one who never broke it. He fulfilled this covenant. He fulfilled the obedience. He fulfilled perfectly, faithfully as your representative king. And he paid the penalty of failure as your representative king. We're all very American here. We struggle here. You ever play chess? Like the game is over. Like, like the king is representative of the entire people. What happens to the king is what happens in the game. It, it, it's similar idea here that, that he is the representative. He's the king. What, 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 he, what happens to him, what is true of Jesus, is true of you. And so what happens is you have Jesus perfectly obedient, deserving blessing, deserving reward, deserving life, but he's betrayed, exiled, crucified to a cross. Instead of the intimate protection of the Father and the love of the Father, the Father gave up the Son to be sin and let all the powers of evil have their way on him. As he's betrayed, mocked, spat upon, crucified. And the deepest pain of all is that in this, Jesus experiences covenant distance, relational distance from his Father. Abandoned to the cross, he bears the full weight of your sin, of my sin, he bears the full curse of covenant disobedience. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 means when it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's our king. And so whatever is true of him is true of us. And vice versa. And so in Jesus, you have what you and I could never be. Jesus is perfect, faithful, chesed, humanity. He's obedient when all it re- receives is wrath. All, there's no reward. All it is is wrath. All it is is punishment. All it is is death. And yet he still, he obeys, even on the cross, his last breath. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Why would he say that? Obedient when it got him nowhere. This is the point of Philippians 2. Where it says about Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedient when it got him nowhere, even to death on a cross, naked, crucified. But because of his obedience, it says, therefore, because he was faithful, because he is the one who is the the, the perfect representative of humanity, a new king, a new way of being human, therefore God raised him up exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Okay, I'm, 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 I'm wrapping this together. Here's where we're going. That this is the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh. He makes covenants and keeps it. Even to the point of what we celebrate at Christmas, that God became a man to fulfill the covenant and bear the curse for breaking it on your behalf. And so therefore, Jesus' faithfulness is the only antidote to your failure. Jesus is faithful to the faithless. He is also faithful for the faithless. Jesus is the hero. He has done something that you cannot do. He has put away the wrath of God forever. There's not some secret stash that is somewhat of wrath where God's secretly angry and he's going to come get you later. No, Jesus fulfills what Exodus 34 had said. And how do you and I know this? It's because of his resurrection. God looks at Jesus, the son forsaken by the father, who had for no, like there was no humanly speaking reason for him to continue to be faithful to God. 
at the cross, faithful to the end, and the Father says, this is the humanity that I am pleased with. And so God raises them from the dead, and in Jesus, there's new creation. Jesus is the head of a new humanity, a new covenant, the first fruits of a new creation. And by faith, the scripture says, if you confess Jesus as Lord, if Jesus is your king, then what is true of him is true of you, and there's a new covenant and a new way of relating with God where his faithful obedience is credited to you. And so now you have right standing with God. That is your identity. What's true of Jesus becomes true of you. And he begins this new creation work even now by sending his spirit into your life. You are clean and forgiven. There's no wrath. There's no condemnation. Only resurrection. If the covenant is in Jesus' blood, it's perfectly paid perfectly forever, resurrected to life, you are covered and cleansed forever. There's a new way of relating to him. If you are in Christ, listen, God is pleased with you. That's an incredible thing for me to be able to stand up here and tell you. If you are in Christ, God is pleased with you. You have access to the Father that will never go away. That's not to say you will never suffer but you will never experience the separation from God. You will never experience the the, the curse of covenant disobedience. Jesus was abandoned so that you will never be abandoned. His care is over you. You will only know God as Father. Steadfast love and faithfulness. He makes a covenant. He says, I'm covenanting to love you. I'm promising to love you. I'm true. And even when we were hell-bent on rejecting and turning that away, the way that he continues his faithfulness is he sends his son to fulfill what you and I could not fulfill and so that his love could be on you forever. He is faithful and true. His steadfast love and faithfulness is so great. It says it's abounding in steadfast love, abounding in his said and amet. Like the stars that are in heaven, right? You ever, you SpaceX, it goes up, you know, it goes, you just kind of imagine, we just landed on Mars, right? Imagine it just keeps going and going and going and going. Like, you guys ever considered, like, the heavens? They don't end. You'll never hit a point, right? You'll never hit a point where you're traveling and, and you hit something and it's like, hey, you need to turn back and go to Earth. Space is infinite. In the same way, God's steadfast love and faithfulness, they're infinite, they're abounding, That's his love. It's gracious. It's not earned. It's set on you, and it's faithful and true. There's no ebb. There's no flow. It's not lacking. It's overflowing and infinite. You'll never get to the bottom. You'll never get to the point where he says, okay, no, I'm not going to keep that for you, actually, because he's already done it perfectly in Jesus. This is the good news of Exodus 34. They have broken the covenant. They just worship the golden calf. They are completely dependent on the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. They need chesed, and he abounds in it. But listen, church, it's even more so for you and me. It's even more so for you and me, because his chesed has been proven amet. His steadfast love has been proven faithful in Jesus. This, this will open up the scripture for you in a whole new way. This is why John reflects on this very moment in Exodus when he says this. This is John 1.14. He says, and the word, that's God, God became flesh, or the idea there is that God tabernacled, just Bible nerd trivia for you. Exodus 24, they said, hey, all that you've spoken will do, we'll keep the commandment. And then God gave them instructions for the tabernacle where his presence would be with them. And then they uh, disobeyed 
on the wedding night, that whole thing, and then God says, here's my name. So he says, hey, the word became flesh. The word, the word tabernacled, dwelt. I'm sorry, yeah, that's the word right there. The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. So he's got that Exodus picture in his mind, and he says, we have seen his glory. What do you mean, John? What do you mean we've seen God's glory? Like Moses asked God, show me your glory, and God gave him a name and a cloud and a tent. What do you mean we've seen his glory? The glory as of the only son from the Father, full, abounding in grace and truth, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the idea of John 1.14. He's saying that you have seen what Moses heard, that Jesus is full of grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness. The name that was proclaimed, that we've been teaching, the name that was proclaimed is embodied in Jesus. I know we've done a lot of theology here. Let's do just a little bit more. And you guys have burnt teachings. This is like not new. Hopefully you guys are doing like, like theology like this. We've done a lot of theology. Let's do a little bit more. There's this tendency when we talk about the God of the Old Testament to say the God of the Old Testament is Yahweh and then the New Testament says, oh, hey, there's also this Son and Holy Spirit guy. So you have this idea of God, and you have to try and cram Trinity into it somehow. But that's not the story. Jesus isn't the introduction of a new character. He is a twist of the lens to bring into focus who Yahweh has been all along. Yahweh is the name of our Trinitarian God. The name that was proclaimed is embodied in Jesus. And not to give away everywhere we're going, I'm sorry, but this is most clearly seen at the cross, as we've seen, as we've been looking at. At the cross, you see a God of mercy and grace. At the cross, you see a God who is slow to anger. At the cross, you see God abounding, like literally bleeding out in steadfast love and faithfulness. At the cross, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. At the cross, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting your sins and the sins of our fathers unto Jesus in your place. At the cross, Jesus is your representative. And though he does not deserve it, he dies. He knows God is the source of blessing, and yet he's cursed. Obedient to the very end, the Father is pleased with him. He is a perfect humanity, a new head, a new covenant, a new way of relating with God. At the cross, God is known, not just in word, but in life. Yahweh is who he says he is. And you can know that because of Jesus. As we say all this, as all that theology, all that covenant and, and, and cross and trinity, all that's okay. You hear of this God who's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The thought I have is like, why would anybody object to this? Like, it sounds great, right? And, and that's, I think, the first reaction is to say, yeah, don't object to this. It's good news. Accept it, right? But, but if, there is a second, if there is a reason why someone would object to this, why, why this would be a tough thing to hear in any way, it's because the call is for you and I to imitate him. To, for, the call is for you and I to walk in this type of covenant love ourselves. The call is for you and I to practice chesed and amet. And that's not what you and I want. Is your love for others dependent on their activity? My guess is usually, yeah. And further, is your love, the way that you relate with God, dependent on your emotive state? Is it dependent on your subjective evaluation of his blessing in your life? 
when you, when, you, when you talk language of covenant, it reveals the power dynamics that are at play between a God and creature. You need to trust him, and the plain fact and reality is we don't like to. We live in a culture of immediacy and pleasure. And the moment things go wrong in all of our relationships, at our job, with our marriages, even with our kids, we start looking for what's next. When are we out of this stage? The moment the high wears off, we start seeking the next. Faithful covenant keeping over generations is not really our thing. And Jesus calls to the way of Jesus is, is faithfulness. It's this long obedience in the same direction. It's a faithfulness to what God has given, to who God is. Even when you go to the dark, even when you go to the cross, it's a trust that God is good, that God will keep his promises. Chesed is difficult. But Hesed is, if I could just give this to you, Hesed is the secret. It's the secret to marriage and to parenting and to all relationships, really. If you love your wife because she is beautiful, or if you love your son because he is obedient, they will disappoint. Another beauty will come away. Disobedience will set in. The secret to marriage, the secret to parenting, the secret to friendship, the secret to church involvement, the secret to relationship is, is strong tied love that's rooted in choice, commitment, and fidelity. A love that is gracious by nature and unconditioned. Not rooted in how the other responds, but rooted in yourself. It sounds unromantic, but I always tell my wife, I don't love you because of anything. <laughs> it's like, it sounds super unromantic, like, Hey, babe, you want to enter into a relational agreement with me? <laughs> That's awful. But it's actually the hope of a healthy marriage. Gracious, unconditioned promise and faithfulness. That's why I'm, I'm a big fan. Just This is like totally free. I'm a big fan. If you guys are like getting married, I'm a big fan of like the old school vows, right? Rich, poor, sick, health, death do us part. Like That's what we're entering into. Chesed is the secret to any relationship, really, even with the church. When you covenant yourself to each other and you commit to love and you're even opening the door and the possibility to hurt because it's not rooted in you, it's rooted in my faithfulness. Chesed is the countercultural way of love. And that's what makes it tough is that it's countercultural. And sin, and which is what's interesting, is that sin makes promises too, covenants of sorts. That's because sin is a God substitute. It, it, it promises pleasure, and pleasure is based on the immediate. And so sin lies and says that what you need most of all is what you need is total, unmitigated freedom. You need options. You need escape hatches. You need a way out. And that's how you can always be happy is that you can always have what's next. You can always n- jump and hop and go. But like a sad Santa at the mall that smells of beef and cheese, right? <laughs> Sin sits on a throne of lies. Sin promises, it makes promises. It makes a covenant, but it has no emet. It cannot deliver. There is no chesed in sin. And faithful, committed, chosen, unconditioned love, it sounds good to receive, but it is so hard to give. It's actually impossible to give apart from this, that the only way to love this way is to know that you've been loved first. We love because he first loved us. At the bottom of it all is this question, is do you see promises and blessings and life 
is do you see that as something that you have to wrestle from God? Something that you have to get the timing just perfect on? Do you have to pray the right prayer? Does it depend on your activity or is it rooted in God's good, faithful, covenant-loving character? Is it rooted in God himself? See, when we say God is faithful to the faithless, that's not an excuse for you to be faithless. It's saying your hope is rooted in his character, not yours, and the response, church, is faith. Yahweh says, here's who I am. I've proven it in Jesus. Come follow me. It's a church we follow. That's the Christian life. It's not a bare minimum of, okay, what do I got to do so God's not mad at me? It's saying, no, come into relationship with me. The goal of the Bible, the goal of his revelation, God wants to be known. God gives you his name. God gives you his character. God has sent his son so that you can know him. And the glory is that, is that through Jesus, you can approach him. You don't need to wander. You don't need to wonder. You, you actually can know God. That's what we mean when we talk about the gospel and the good news that the church has to offer the world is that you can know God. You can approach him. His presence is your joy. His power is actually for your behalf. His pleasure is on you. This is what it means when we say that our God is Yahweh. So let me pray for us.